How can we not be in awe with the God that created the universe? That puts all the starry hosts into place and calls them out by number. The God that formed us and and created us to be in relationship with Him. God, really that knowledge is just too great for us. God, I would pray that that awe would give way to worship. And God, that you would give us that passion to love you and to desire you. And and this morning as we look into your word, Lord, that, that who you are becomes even more evident to us. What you desire of us. God, would you show us yourself this morning? God, I pray that you would protect your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that that the words that we go through this morning would be the message that you have for your body. And God, I pray that you would meet each one of us here. God, I pray for those distractions that that came in this morning. God, could you just superintend over those distractions? That we'd have ears to hear and eyes to see. God, perfect us. Perfect us as a body. Perfect us as saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Chris Richards. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church, and I get to bring the word this morning. As many of you know, if you're new with us, we teach through a book of the Bible, and right now we're in Genesis. And so today we are in Genesis, and we're going to get through chapter 2. And I said that last week, and well, it didn't happen. So we'll get through it this week, Lord willing. There are a number of things as I've been studying through this that that I just want to throw out at the beginning. So if in fact for some reason you lose interest and go to sleep, you just catch it right up front. But there are a couple of things in here that have just blown me away as I've watched the creation events. And the first is man, us, is really the apex of creation. Creation finds purpose, natural creation, finds purpose when man comes on. You see that God gives man this sovereignty over the animals and the earth and he goes and subdues it. And on and on and on you see that mankind is phenomenally significant to both the earth and to God. Now notice I'm stopping just shy of saying it's all about us. But it's a lot about us. And as we go through today, we're gonna, we're gonna see man get created, we're gonna see woman get created, we're gonna see all these great things about man and woman come to, it's fantastic. But we have to have it in our head that 
We are significant. Now I'm blowing this out of proportion because those of you who are sitting back there going, we are sinful and degraded and we are all deserving of hell. I, I pushed it over the edge of that just to make everyone think for a minute. God created man for a purpose. And we are significant to him. But then, just like every other thing in Scripture that sometimes I tend to find a little frustration with because it's hard to process through, is that God is not going to share his glory with anyone. I don't care how significant we are in the natural process of things. God is not going to share his glory with us. And as you see the design through creation, you see him making sure that everything is set so that there's only one way through it, and that way ends in his glory. And that's just incredible to me. That you, you want to go through and think, okay, but, but what about this method? What if we were created this way? Or what if God did this and then this? Every time you step out of the confines of Scripture to try and make some other system out of it, what you end up with is man getting a little more glory and God getting a little less. And when you stick directly to the text of Scripture, what you have is no way to steal any glory from God. Now, we see that also you go to the New Testament. God says, you know what? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because the more you try and own your own salvation, the more glory you try and squeeze out of that lemon, the less glory God gets, the further you are away from the gospel. And that gospel doesn't save you. Every cult goes wrong in the first three chapters of Genesis. Every one of them. Because in the end, this whole event is about God's glory. And so this is the piece, it's just the part that no matter what we go through in the geography lessons and the the different pieces we're going to go through today, we have to filter it through this. God created everything for His glory. Did He need to? Was God lonely in heaven one day and said, hmm, I ought to create me a universe and put some people in it so I can chill out with them? He didn't do that. He was in perfect companionship with the Trinity. There's no need for him to create people so he has somebody to go fishing with. It's not necessary. God is perfectly fulfilled, perfectly eternal, and doesn't need you. But he did. He made us. He created us. He created this magnificent universe. All for us. Now we're going to go through a big section today. And so, and there's big words in this section. So what we're going to do is we're going to let the computer read it to us this morning. Okay, there's geography in here. And I don't want to try and say the words. And so, what we're going to do, turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 4. And just like I talked about last week. We're going to go through the Sabbath, verses 1 through 3. We're going to take a special time and do that by itself. And so, what we're going to go through today is verses 4 through 25. Okay? Let's go ahead and do that. Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. So, the reason we're going through chapter 2 right now is chapter 2 really fits in a place here between verses 26 and 27 in chapter 1. When you read a number of things, there's, there's a little confusion as to, well, did somebody write chapter 1 as kind of a prose and then later on, Moses came along and, and wrote chapter 2 the way it really was, and the two don't really line up. Well, that's not it at all. What we have here is the important event of the advent, essentially, of man and woman demands a further explanation. This is the apex of creation. And so what we do have here is Moses just explaining, and this we see this all the way through the Old Testament, where it's kind of just set out there for you initially, and then explained a little bit further on. And so that's what we have here. We have initially in verses 26 and 27, it says, The Lord God said, let us create man in our own image. And, and then the next thing it says is he did it. He created man and woman in his image, male and female. He made them. 
and then we move on through creation. And when we get to chapter 2, chapter 2 starts off with the Sabbath, but then in this verse 4, it says, here are the generations when the heavens and the earth were created. And so it's the, it's the insert piece here that explains how that creation took place. Now that verse that starts off in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. We'll see this 10 different times in Genesis. So as we step through Genesis, this is one of those phrases that subdivide Genesis into its parts. Okay? We know that Genesis is the book of beginnings. We see the beginning of the nation of Israel. We see the beginning of the world. We see all of these different things. It's the book of beginnings. And so we have here, these are the generations. This phrase is used over and over and over throughout Genesis to kind of break it up into its parts. And you see that in that table there, the different ones that exist. Some of the major ones, if you look there in uh, about halfway through on number six, Terah, that's Abram's father. And so when you have that division there, that's where we have the whole nation of Israel kind of starting. Okay, that's the patriarchs. So you have the first piece there, which is all kind of pre-flood. And then afterward you have, you have these other ones and Abram starting there. So this is a way that we see the structure of Genesis take place. And we talked last week about how things change. And I just want to make a quick note on this because as we, we move into the creation of man and woman, we need to note that there is a change in the name of God. And so just in review, all the way through the first five and a half days of creation, the name of God was Elohim, the creator God. And then right here at day six and a half, the name changes to the redeemer creator God when we start seeing man and woman formed. Okay? And that table that's up there, when you we had a couple of discussions after church last week. In your Bible as you read it, it's just something to keep in mind. Because as you read along, there are some times your Bible will say, and God this. Or it might say, God my provider this. And it's actually a name for God. And so pay attention whenever the word God is used in your Bible as you're reading it, what words are directly around it? What's the punctuation look like? How about the capitalization? Sometimes the word God is all capital. Sometimes it's... Just pay attention to that. Here... It changes in verse 4 to the Redeemer Creator God. Because things now start to get intimate. Things start to get intimate now and so we use a different word for God. This is the same name when Moses was at the bush and said, What's your name, God? Who should I tell him sent me? And God said, Here's my name. Here's my name. My name is I Am. And the word he used there, Yahweh... And and there's all kinds of odd business in the Old Testament about this word. But in the end, what we have is, this is Jehovah God. That's the name given to Moses. And so Moses was very, I'm going to say, connected to this name. This is the God that called him out of the desert to deliver the people. And so when he says, Redeemer God when he walks through the creation of man, you already see the sense of the, the attitude here changing. Let's go to verses 5 through 9. God 
formed man. It starts off by saying, you know, there's a little bit of a problem. There's no one to work the ground. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about when, when creation happened, there's a dignity involved here. And we saw that all the way through the Egyptian and the Mesopotamian cultures and mythologies, mankind was created to do the work the gods didn't want to do. That's it. That's what these people have been steeped in for hundreds of years now. That the people, you are created to work. And by the way, this says the same thing. You also have been created to work. And this is even before the fall. Note that. But notice the difference. Nowhere here does it say, you know what, God didn't want to clean the fish and so he created man to do it for him. God didn't want to pull the weeds or God didn't want to build this or... The Pharaoh God didn't want to build his own things, and so it's perfectly fine that you were created to do that. We don't want to miss the dignity piece here. Because when God created man, he put him, we're going to find out, in a garden. And this garden was perfectly fit for him to work in. This wasn't a place where transmissions fall on your head. This isn't a place where you go out and try and garden and it's just weeds all over the place and, and you're just pulling your hair out because it's just... God created a perfect environment to put this man in. But let's look how it happened. This is what it says. It says there was no man to work the ground. and It says God formed the man. And the word there connotates that he, he carved him out. He just... He carved him perfectly. Every nuance of this man he made perfect. And then he got in his face and he breathed life into him. You don't see that anywhere else in creation. It just says, he built him and all of a sudden it was a cheetah and he's running through the woods. Here he forms the man and he breathes life into him. And what we have here is a big word called an anthropomorphism. Okay, where we see, we see um, God has kind of a human trait where he's breathing. He's blowing on this man. And we see this, this kind of human interaction. This face-to-face thing that's going on. God formed the man and made him alive by breathing into him. And then we get this bit of a, a geography lesson about this garden that God makes. And it's interesting that God says he created all of these trees that were pleasant to the eye and good for food. This place was perfect. Perfect. He gets, it never gets messy. <laughs> He's always, it's just a perfect place to be. God creates him there and he puts him there to work this garden. I often ask the question, what does it mean to work if he's in a perfect place? We don't even know what that looks like. But what we do know is before the fall, before the law, before anything, God says you were created and put in the garden to work. Now, in 2009, what does that start to mean? We're kind of, we have, a, sometimes we have a very dualistic attitude about life where, oh, I got to go to work now. I don't want to go to work. I hate going to work. I need to be doing spiritual things. Well, 
God created you to work. Work is a spiritual thing. Now that's marred now because of sin. And when you go, you're always working uphill both ways in the snow, barefooted. Right? It's always work and it's always hard now. But work is holy. And to think otherwise, you can't do that. Because God created you to work all the way from the beginning. When we get to heaven, we still have things to do. We still have things to do. Now, here's another interesting piece. When we look at the days of creation, we see that things all have purpose. And they do kind of culminate at man. So watch this. You have plants... And all the animals need the plants to eat. And the plants need the sunshine. And and all the way through this creation process, we get these organizational complexities that just grow and grow and grow. And so you can say, well, I know what the purpose of plants are. The purpose of plants are for the animals to eat them. And I know what the purpose of the bugs are. The bugs are to aerate the soil so that the plants grow. And, And all of these things have purpose, 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 until you get... To the top of the food chain. Until you get to man. Right? Never do you see this. You never see the elephant sitting out in the savannah and saying, Oh man, I'm hot. Babar, can you go rustle up some of those villagers to come build me a hut? Because I need some shade. You don't see that. But you see mankind, anytime he needs something, he goes out, he finds some burden, some beast of burden, he straps a plow to him, he straps something, and he makes these animals work. Now we see that we eat them, we eat the food, we use the planet, we need gravity, we have all of these things. Mankind needs everything on earth to survive. In fact, anybody that's seen that privileged planet, if earth was just moved over a slight fraction of a degree, poof, mankind ceases to exist. We need everything exactly how it is. But you know something interesting? There is nothing on this planet that needs you. I just think about that for a minute. If all mankind was gone, would the forest still grow? Yep. Would the animals still be fine? Yep. The only thing that needs you is you. So the purpose of creation ends at the feet of mankind. Everything in nature has a natural purpose. You. And that's exactly how God made it. God built creation for you. This is the part where I said at the beginning, it just, it kind of undoes me because I think, wow, that's incredible. And then I'm reminded, but don't forget, yes, it's made for you, all of these things, but primarily it's made for God's glory. And so as creation stops at your feet, what you do with it dictates the glory that God gets. Because it doesn't really end here. But because you're a volitional person, because you have choice, you can decide what to do with this creation. Whether God gets his glory behind you or not, hmm, let me not say it that way because that's dangerous. God's going to get his glory. And you standing in the way of it isn't really much of a speed bump, I guess. But the purpose, the natural purpose of creation 
stops at you and nothing needs you. So why were we created? The earth will go on just fine. And it says God reached down and he formed man. He said, let's make man in our image. Let's make God image bearers and let's fill the world with them. Blue life into this man. What's your purpose? Let's move on to my favorite part. Absolutely my favorite part. It is not good that man should be alone. So here's man. He is in an absolutely perfect environment. Men, just think of this for a moment. You have something to do. You have something to eat. You have a God to talk to. Tell me what it is you need. You don't need anything. You're sitting there in a perfect environment. And God says, "Mm -mm. it's not good that man should be alone. Adam didn't say that. Adam didn't even know. He's just happy as a clam sitting here counting pears off the pear trees, whatever he was doing. Adam was perfectly in relationship to God in his environment. God said, this isn't good. Well, we see some obvious reasons why that is. You can't fill the world with image bearers if there's just one guy. But more than that, God created man incomplete. Now, it doesn't matter what commentary you read. It doesn't matter how stoic or how scholarly the guy is. When you get to this point, everybody's got a joke. Everybody's got a joke. And I just read some of the most hilarious... And it doesn't... It's both sides. But the whole idea of the creation of man and woman is... It's such a beautiful event. But it is, there's, there's little things about men and women that are just different. And some of them are just funny. And I'm not going to share any of those jokes. You just have to go read them yourself. But some of them are very funny. He said... It's not good that man should be alone. So right away, God starts to invoke the first awareness program. Now, Adam has a job. He is sovereign over creation. His job is to go and subdue the earth. And part of that we talked about last week is he needs to go name the animals. Just like God named day, God named night, land, sea. God named all these things because he's saying, I am sovereign over all this. And so then... God takes the animals and he runs them by Adam and says, you need to name these because you're sovereign over the creation. But he had a secondary purpose here. God always has a secondary territory. He has all these purposes in what he does. Never think that God's only doing something for one reason. He starts parading the animals by him. And Adam's looking at him, checking out the animals. This guy is incredibly smart. He's perfect man. No chromatid breakages yet. Right? His mind is fully functioning. And so he's taking these animals apart and, and figuring out what to name them and classifying them and all that. And so he's giving them these great names and as they go by. But as they parade by, he gets a little hungrier and a little hungrier. And you might think I'm making that up, but I'm not. Because when we get to the next verse, you're going to see his reaction. So all of these animals come by, but it says 
there was not a helper fit for him. They didn't find one. And so God went, darn it. I spent all that time making the animals. I messed up. I couldn't come up with one for this guy. No, no, no. And we can't think that. But it's, it is easy as you read this. And we had this discussion in Flock that it is so simple to read this and think, woman's just an afterthought. He made all the animals. He made man. He started a whole thing going on. And oops, forgot. Hey, no. No, no. Mankind is volitional. Man has choice. Cheetah have no choice. Pheromones go, things happen. It's the way it works. Man has choice. And you can already see the picture. Give me a little leniency with this story. It's meant to be funny. But you can see the picture in, in heaven where God says, Hey guys, I gotta make I'm gonna make a woman and and they need to fit together. And the angel's like, Yeah, but you know, you gave the guy choice. What if he doesn't like her? And God says, Oh, I'll make sure that doesn't happen. Right? This is the picture that you get. And so all of these animals go by and no helper that completes Adam is found. Nothing that completes him. Nothing that is just like him. Nothing that has his same DNA. Nothing that has the same desire and will for life and the same ability to intellectualize in things and, and desire God and communicate. None of this was found in all the animals. And we need to make note of that. It, what's that fuzzy thing with the four legs? Dog. Dog is not man's best friend. Okay? He, he may come and rub up against you. He's not man's best friend. Because the dogs went by him too and no helper suitable was found. None. And God said, okay, let's put the guy to sleep. He takes out a rib. He closes up his side. And he fashions woman. This is an incredible moment. Now, even if I just pause for effect, guys, just so you can just think about this for a minute. This is the most wonderful event in the history of mankind. And by this time, Adam knows it. And so Eve is in the line of animals. But God's another anthropomorphism, okay? What you get is a picture here of a father giving away a daughter. When it says God brought the woman to him, you see God just delivering this wonderful masterpiece to this man. And he says, eh, don't scream last. You just, the elation here... All of this stuff, creation, stars, plants, trees that are beautiful for my eyes and food I love to eat and it's perfectly warm and I'm naked. Everything's great. But when woman comes by, he says, there it is. Finally, at last, that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The man is elated here. You just, you got to feel that when he walks by and God delivers her to him. And no longer is he alone. 
God solves that problem just like he did with the formless and void. No longer is the man alone. What do you think Adam's choice was? You know Adam could have said, yep, woman, next! He he could have done that. He's naming everything. God made it perfectly clear to Adam when she walked by that was a helper fit for him. And you see that when he says, at last, there she is. That's my helper. But you got to be interested to see that he's still a man. How does he finish it? He names her. That's his job. And so he still goes through and finishes up. He's all excited. Oh, wait, let me get back to task. That's woman because she was made out of man. He st- that was a joke. I just, I just love that part because, you know, guys, they, that's the way we are. We got to get the thing done. And so that's what he did. But then it finishes up this way. It says, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, join, grab onto his wife. And the two now complete, the two now become one flesh. It's interesting, Jesus in Matthew 19 quotes this when the, the Pharisees come to him and start trying to test him about the whole divorce thing. Jesus jumps right back to this and he says, well, haven't you read? The creation, God made them male and female. And for that reason, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave and the two shall be one, become one flesh. Let no man separate what God has put together. When God created woman, it completed who man was, and we now have this perfection. And I can say perfection because later on God says he looked at everything he created, and it was very good. So when you go home and something doesn't go your way, look at your spouse and say, it's very good. Okay, sin kind of messes things up. God didn't create it that way. God created it very good. Very good. And so now God institutes marriage. God institutes marriage. We have that they're going to leave and they're going to cleave and the two will become one flesh. And I just have to say... I love being married. And I love this section. Because, you see, I mean, we put a lot of energy into being married. It is, because of sin, you end up having to walk uphill. And you got to get to know each other. And, and all of these things happen that you got to fight with all the time. Because it's your desire that this wholeness, this perfection, is in the image of God. As man, we're we're created in the image of God, as mankind. And we saw that sin, it marred that, but sanctification means we're, we're becoming more and more and more like the perfect image of Christ. Well, your marriage is now complete and the two become one flesh. And that union also is meant to be sanctified and made into a perfect image of Christ. And we see that 
over and over in the New Testament, God draws the example of the bride forward. We see in Revelation 19 where there's going to be this huge banquet. When the bride has been prepared for the lamb and the church is being delivered to Christ, perfect, spotless, covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the church, those who have put their faith in Christ, are the bride and we're being delivered as a gift to the husband. John 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. I'm going to go away. But there's lots of rooms in my father's house and I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is the whole betrothal process. When when Jesus is going to leave, he's going to leave, but he's going to prepare a place for his bride so that he comes back and receives her, the church, to himself. And so this whole process of marriage starts before the law. Before the law. This is creation. And it's an example much like light that is just sat upon over and over and over through Scripture to show us the relationship first between Israel and God and then in the church where the church is the bride of Christ. We see this just over and over and over being brought back into the picture. So to take marriage and to mess it up with our own ideas and our own thoughts and, well, it should look like this, it should look like that, it should... Whenever you do that, that image of what the bride and what the marriage is meant to be also starts to lose its meaning. And so eventually you live in a culture where marriage is simply not necessary. Whatever. We're a man, woman, we procreate, that's the way it works. But then, what happens to this whole thing about the bride of Christ? You have no concept of what that even means because the holiness, the sanctification that God has wrapped that with is now gone. I need to close off here. He ends. So I said, verse 26, verse 27, this fits in between them in chapter 1. We go back to chapter 1 and it says, God surveyed everything he created and this is what he said. It will work. It's fine. They're going to sin anyway and mess it all up. No, that's not what he said. He surveys all of the, what he created and he said, it's very good. All of it. I'm talking people, flesh, stones, material things. All of it is good. Not just the spiritual things. All of it is good because God created it that way. What are the implications of this? This is a, a piece that I have. I went to a bookstore this week and, and I just grabbed a book and read through the first couple of chapters of it. And this part just jumped out to me. There's implications in believing creation. First, men, if in fact God created you, then God also has the right to define your manhood. If God created you, he also can tell you what your purpose is, who you are, who you are in him. And all the answers are there. If he did not create you, you're left alone. And you've got to figure it out yourself. Women, if God created you, he defines who you are. He defines your womanhood. And he gives us that. If he didn't create you, if you were random chance, then you're on your own. You've got to try and figure out what womanhood is. Every generation has to do it. Have to reinvent the wheel and figure it out. 
marriage. If God instituted marriage, then God has the definition of what marriage is. If God said he's for your marriage, he can keep... It's true. If God created marriage, the implication is God gets to define what marriage is. What the union between a man and a woman and what makes this perfection work. God defines that. In 2009, you are still created in God's image. And don't believe the lie. You are not alone. You are not a product of random chance. You are created in the image of God for the sole purpose of bringing glory to Him. And believing the lie is going to undermine that. To think that you're just random. To think that God has no purpose in your life, for your life, is going to just degrade what you think about your purpose and who you are and how you are and whose you are. Let's pray. Worship team, if you could come up. Lord God, I am thankful that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know our thoughts. You know when we sit down and when we stand up. And God, I am overwhelmed to know that that though we've been separated from you, you have provided a perfect way through Christ that the relationship, that perfect relationship that you created for us in the beginning could be restored. God, I just pray that you would just send that deep into each one of us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.